This is a Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. De La Soul pioneered a new sound and direction for rap in the 80s and 90s. Now that their music is finally coming to streaming services, how will De La Soul speak to a new generation of hip-hop fans? They were one of the first groups to help me discover sampling and help me discover other music. And in terms of just sampling as an art form alone, I think they moved it into a whole new dimension. The Legacy of De La Soul, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Their government names were David Jew Jolacour, Vincent Mason, and Kelvin Mercer. But to rap fans, they'll forever be known as Trugoy, Posdenus, and Maceo of the legendary hip-hop group De La Soul. Their music helped expand the vision about what rap was, the message it could carry, and the people it could reach. With classic albums like Three Feet High and Rising, De La Soul is dead and stakes is high. The songs of De La Soul struck a chord with millions of fans from high school, lunchrooms, all the way to the White House. Here's a clip of them performing their classic Me, Myself, and I for President Obama in 2016. All right, y'all. Let's see what you about to party, y'all. Come on, Dave. Come on. Come on. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Hey. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just we love this song? I what I do ain't make-believe. Yeah. People say I sit and try. When it comes to being daylight clothes, it's just me, myself, and I. That was a clip from BET's Love and Happiness tribute concert for President Obama. Now, today, a whole new generation of music lovers have the opportunity to discover or rediscover De La Soul for themselves. After a long, twisting series of negotiations, De La Soul's music is finally available for streaming. While that calls for celebration, the moment is bittersweet. It comes just weeks after founding member Trugoy died at the young age of 54. Joining us to talk about the remarkable music and legacy of De La Soul is Don Will. He's a DJ, a rapper, and the host of the Almanac of Rap podcast. He's also a producer who created our theme music. We're really happy to have him on today. Don Will, welcome to A Word. Hey, man. I'm happy to be here. We originally reached out to you to talk about De La Soul finally coming to streaming services today. But when Trugoy died a couple weeks ago, it kind of changed things. So before we dive into the larger story about the music... Tell us more about him. Who was Trugoy and what was his unique contribution to this group? I feel like for me and how I viewed the group, um, they were pioneers not only of sound, but of style. Like when you saw them visually, it was just like a, an explosion. You know, like everything else, like I guess it was the same effect that Run DMC had when they came on the scene dressing like, you know, like people look on the block. De La Soul came on the scene dressing like, a person that 
just was in their mom's basement hanging out. It was so relatable. It was such a, a refreshing moment visually. And just from a musical standpoint, the lyrics were so dense. They tricked out language to work in their favor and like it, it transcended eras and decades and now it's, it's circling back. But um, Dave himself, he just looked like the coolest dude in the world. <laughs> like uh, like all of his, the, the, the hat symmetry when he wears his hat, the hat was like tilted a certain way. He was just the coolest guy in the world to me. Like he was like a, a literal superhero for me. What was your first exposure to De La Soul? And what was their first song or album that really resonated with you? I, I can say for me, it was Jenny. So I remember hearing Potholes and just being like dumbstruck. Like, what is this? You know, like and seeing the video. And I won't say I gravitated to it initially. It was just so different. And, you know, music was so slow back then. Like, you kind of had to sit with what you just saw. But I got the album immediately. And from pushing the tape in and hearing just interludes and this talking and like the skits, I think the skits were the thing that pulled me in more than anything, like the narrative, because the language was so dense and coded. A lot of times... It, I didn't know what was happening on the songs, <laughs> like potholes in my line. What is this about? But I did understand, yo, put the tape in the box or, or you, like, you know, like the, the kind of bullying thing that was happening on the, on, the, on the skits. And it was just such a departure from what I was used to in, hearing on rap albums. So I'll save my favorites for later. But it's like the thing that pulled me in initially was the skits and like the, uh, the album artwork, like the like I'm, I'm a full presentation person. So when you open the, the cassette tape and you have like a, a panel comic book, it's just like, what is this? <laughs> I was privy to my dad's record collection and he had vinyl like you fold it open and there would be like this full album artwork and these like kind of quirky takes on what what a visual package could be. And that was the first time I'd experienced it with a rap group. There were a lot of labels attached to the work of De La Soul when he first started out. It was called nerdy, progressive or conscious rap. But what hits me about them is that they were literally a group where you could objectively say they were ahead of their time. How do you look at that? Do you really see them as ahead of their time? Were they capturing something that was already existing and we weren't just aware of it? How do you, how do you view that label? I definitely gel with it being ahead of our time because when you think about it, hip-hop in general is it's this youth culture, this street reporting. It's these voices that would otherwise go unheard just kind of getting amplification. And De La Soul made this umbrella for all others to stand under. The artistry of it all, for me anyway was that it It wasn't necessarily in contrast to everything that was going on. It was in addition. Like, I think that part of the thing that defined their aesthetic against everybody else was that if N.W.A. is like the, the kid, the loud, brash kid to get kicked out or sent to the principal's office, De La Soul is just kind of like the silly kids in the back of the room who have inside jokes for you. One of the terms used to label De La Soul at the time was that they were hippies. In the 2016 documentary, De La Soul is Not Dead, there's a snippet from an interview with a group where they were just coming up and this sort of hippie concept comes into play. Let's play that clip now. Are you the new hippies? Um, we don't mind when people say that we're hippies. We just don't appreciate when people claim that we're trying to do it just to sell records and just to get people interested. You know, everything we do is made up out of our personalities. So if our sound has a hippie-like sound, then I guess that's what it has. But do you feel a hippie yourself? You're wearing a peace sign. Yeah, I'm wearing a peace sign, but that doesn't represent the fact that I'm being a hippie. I mean, everyone wants peace and harmony in the world, so I guess that's why we, we deal with the peace sign. The hippie label was a key part of sort of marketing De La Soul as safe black people to white audiences. 
how did De La Soul deal with that label? Like, you can hear there's sort of a slight discomfort in being labeled that way, but it will also, it helped them sell. I feel like they railed against it really hard on the second album, De La Soul Was Dead. From the album cover with the knocked over Daisy Flower Pot to just like Biddy's in the BK Lounge. They pretty much said, yeah, we're, we, want, we want love and peace. And I think they said it explicitly on the song. Like, we want love and peace, but we will absolutely get into it. We will, we will fight you. Like, don't get it twisted. We're still some young black kids from New York. We stand on our own, too. And you know what I'm saying? Like, that was the thing about Daylight that I love so much is that over the course of time, you would see them continuously reinvent themselves and and self-examine and course correct in this way that, like, the, the media couldn't necessarily cage them in. I have an episode of my podcast about just acronyms and how rappers love to make words into other words and stuff like that. And... The Daisy Age, the inner sound, y'all, that was an acronym for Daisy. That's what they came up with. It was more or less about expressing themselves artistically than it was about this defining sort of like, I am a hippie and we are the children in the age of Aquarius. It was just, this is some fly shit that I just thought up. Like, you know what I'm saying? We gonna, this is our angle in. Over time, they they always represented that, but they also said we're so much more. You know what I'm saying? It's about, it's about allowing, if we're going to continue on with the flower metaphor, it's allowing the flower to bloom and become more than just a daisy you know what i'm saying and become fully evolved and adapted men who you know when they put the first album together they were in their teens and that's how a lot of hip-hop is and it's youth culture in in a way but it's also you're supposed to be able to grow old into it and you're supposed to be able to have four or five albums where you go from you know you might be a hippie on one album be labeled as a hippie on the next album you might be like okay i don't know what's happening here then you're in your full art phase then you're in your I'm an adult man with Bill's face, you know? <laughs> We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the legacy of De La Soul. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about De La Soul with rapper, DJ, and producer Don Will. In the era when De La Soul got its start, there were like all these different posses, different groups, right? Sort of creative collectives, um, different hip hop acts. And, you know, they had like a similar aesthetic or sound. De La Soul was part of the native tongues. So who else was in that group? And, and what was the relationship like amongst those members? Okay. So you had the jungle brothers who were like the, the grandfathers of the whole thing or the big brothers and uh, red alert was in there tangentially. And then you had De La Soul, obviously a tribe called quest you had Black Sheep, and you had these offshoots like Queen Latifah was affiliated. You had the Beat Nuts affiliated. You had Chi Ali affiliated. You had 
common most deaf artists that would pop up in albums, they were loosely and tangentially affiliated and it just trickled out to, you know, like the roots and other acts like that. I know that the native tongues originated out of Calliope Studios, a place where they all used to record and come through. I don't think they came in there not knowing that they were going to be these specific groups, but they came in there and kind of just hung out together. And that's why you would hear songs like Buddy or you would hear Q-Tip pop up on Me, Myself and I with The Black is Black. You would hear stuff like that because they were all literally in the same room and like coming in to check out what each other was doing. Over time, like, you know, as, as careers travel and they get further away from one another, I think they still did a pretty good job of keeping in touch with each other. And I, I you know, like, like you would have Dress popping up on Balloon Mind State, kind of just hanging out with the crew. Because again, like they're in the same physical space, sharing uh, each other's company. Even though it wasn't their aim, De La Soul was one of the first major rap acts to cross over to white audiences. And I wanna make that clear, there were rap groups that were popular with white people at the time. You had Run DMC, who did a song with Aerosmith. It's not like white people weren't listening to rap, but there was a different way that De La Soul was doing it. And they had a wider cultural impact. In fact, they actually featured talk show host Maury Povich in the video for the title track from Stakes is High. Let's play that clip. Rap in the 90s. It's creative, it's candid, it's controversial. But how much does the music dictate real life? And how much does real life dictate the music? Today on the show, we have rappers De La Soul to discuss the many ways. Keep it real. How did their fame outside of sort of the traditional rap world affect the way that other artists treated them, right? I mean, because remember, we had in the 90s, there was the whole rap versus R&B, you know, R&B stands for rap is bullcrap. And, you know, were they viewed by other rappers as being legit or were they viewed as sort of these soft crossover kids? They were viewed as friction. So they were definitely viewed as legit. They weren't viewed as a threat, so to speak. They were just viewed as like this other voice that was coming in. In a lot of ways, they were they were crossover, but they were still like not as major as bigger artists. So like there were definitely acts that were bigger than De La Soul. And at their height, I want to say Stakes is High. I'm kind of leery to say it, but I feel like Stakes is High was like one of their peak moments. You know, when they were in, in the, the bigger spotlight that they had and, and during their trajectory, because, you know, again, they came back around with the gorillas and all that stuff. But so they've had moments, ebbs and flows, as most careers do. But at that moment in time, it was definitely just like we were in the flossy era. It was Versace. It was rest in peace. Big was big. <laughs> and Wu-Tang and the Gambino movement and Nas and Escobar. Like there was so many different iterations of rap that were all kind of like in this repetitive mold of crime lord drug lord moneyed up gang affiliated thing and de la soul was just like railing against like you don't have to be that the stakes are too high for you to pretend to be something other than you are and that was kind of like the whole point of the the project and the album and the title and all that stuff for me anyway one of the things about de la soul that really distinguishes them especially when you think of like native tongue i mean i have i have a native tongue's t-shirt that I still wear is that they continued performing together for like 30 years. What was it about their relationships that kept them still performing as a group when so many other groups fall apart and fall off? This is my personal theory, but in no way, shape or form have an intimate knowledge of the inner workings of De La Soul. With that preface, I feel like Dave was the glue in that respect, because when you think about De La Soul feature, it was always the group or Poss. Dave rarely popped up as a soloist. The group itself, 
just kind of like operated solely as a group. He had no interest, in, in my opinion, he had no interest in a solo career. And whenever Poss would pop up, a lot of times it would say either Poss the Noose of De La Soul or just Poss the Noose. But whenever Dave popped up, it would say po- featuring De La Soul. Even his social media presence was We Are De La Soul. So thing that I love most about him, especially coming from a rap group myself and being the type of person that you know, I do have a solo career, but I, I absolutely honor and value the collaborative work more than the solo work in some respects when it comes to vocal stuff. I just love how he just clung so hard to the group aesthetic, because especially, you know, when you think about how hip hop is turned out, where solo acts are valued way higher than group acts. We still have groups, but it's not like like the first thing they always say is like, yo, you should go solos. The money's better. Like it's always about the money or about something other than the artistic collaboration. So I think that one of the things that kept them together was just understanding that three voices is stronger than one. Yeah. So, Don, that's the thing. If you think about a lot of these groups in the 90s, you know, Tupac came out of Digital Underground. You know, Eminem came out of D12. All these people sort of jumped out and and left their group. You talk about that some of them held together with the glue, but why did money play a role? Why did some of these groups break up as opposed to Daylaw? Because, I mean, I guess there are always opportunities and there's always people whispering in your ear, yo, you could be bigger than all these guys if you just take this deal. I think one of the main things that happens with groups breaking up and with, you know, with just people going solo in general is that there's this calling to speak to your specific artistic message. And you don't want to you don't want to muddle it up with other people's opinions and other people's sounds. And I'm not saying that in like a a beef way. I'm just saying it in terms of like just whatever your artistic statement is. But I think that part of what De La Soul was, was just this is a collective opinion. Like when I think about De La Soul, I think about early rap routine. They would almost write the rhyme together and say parts of it. Even how the Beastie Boys are. Like there was this aesthetic to where being a group was fly. It was it was so much cooler to be a collective and brotherhood and have this this collective work and effort thing as opposed to just being like, yeah, I'm, I'm the kingpin. I'm, I run this. You know what I'm saying? I'm, it's just me by myself. I got my crew in the back, but they don't have a voice on this. If the money wasn't in play, I feel like a lot more people would stay within the confines of a group. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the impact of legendary rap group De La Soul with producer Don Will. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the impact and legacy of De La Soul with hip hop producer Don Will. So this is another key thing. After years of legal wrangling, De La Soul is finally coming to streaming services today. And this is, I I want you to speak to how important this is because I've had this conversation with people about, say, Aaliyah, that that Aaliyah's music is still not available on a lot of streaming. And it's not just that we lose the sort of cultural impact of these people when they're not available on streaming, but there's a financial impact, right? The next generation doesn't know who they are. So take us a little bit through this legal wrangling process and how much it means to the surviving members of De La Soul that their music is now available. Again, like this ties in perfectly what we were saying about just the economics of a rap group. The economics of the music business in general is one that if you can't participate in your streaming revenues, you're missing out. And De La Soul, sure, they were one of those groups that tour heavily and they do a bunch of shows and um, the money from shows comes in. But, you know, if we're talking about the pure financial aspect of things, streaming, if you're not participating in streaming as a, as a legacy act, you're kind of missing out on a big pot of revenue. But financial things aside, having them on streaming 
for me personally, it's one of those things where I know that my Spotify rap is just going to be De La Soul, De La Soul, De La Soul. <laughs> they were one of the first groups to help me discover sampling and help me discover other music. And in terms of just sampling as an art form alone, I think they moved it into a whole new dimension. And then you have artists like the Avalanches years later who kind of come do the same sound collage thing but they don't get the same chastisement. They don't get the same reprimand because they're able to figure out how to navigate the red tape in a way that Daylight couldn't because Daylight kind of laid down on the sword for generations to come. Um, so their music being on streaming is as important as when they first came on the scene, once again, in my opinion. Like, like their entrance into the streaming platform space is as disruptive as their entrance into like just the recording industry in general. Um, and I feel like like my call to action to anybody listening and to anybody who is just a fan of of artists that don't necessarily fit into a mold is run that up. You know what I'm saying? Go buy an album, like listen to everything on streaming, pre-save everything, just simply because these are the people that that made it possible for so many of your favorite acts and artists to even have a career. Yeah, so them being in the streaming space is like it's I, <laughs> in a weird way, man, like I, I don't want to bring it down, but in a weird way, when they announced that they got their catalog back. I was so excited about the release date because it was going to be the day where I would see daylight content plastered all over the internet. And it was just like that moment. I was going to have a moment to just be happy because, you know, we, we're in this time of collective grieving, a collective mourning where if I wake up and I see five pictures in succession of the same person, I'm like, what happened? Or if, if, if that name pops up, I'm like, what happened? And that was going to be the one moment where I knew what had happened. I knew it was for like the right reason. And, you know, you flash back a couple weeks ago it wasn't that. But I'm still going to, you know, like celebrate the fact that the world kind of stopped for one of your icons and one of your favorite groups. And then the world gets to celebrate them in that way. It's, it's still like for me, it's bittersweet, but I'm going to like try to find the sweet and the bitter more so. The idea of struggling with unscrupulous management and and people taking your talent and taking your money, that is a common trope in the music industry. And it's, it's a real one, right? It's not a stereotype. It's a real one. We have a clip now of Maceo talking about one particular music executive that he dealt with on the show Drink Champs back in 2019. I'm going to play this clip. Get your thoughts. <laughs> we'll get, get, get a couple of shots and we can go back, back into it. There but, you go. But, um, I, 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 I say this much, Nori. Mm -hmm. it, you know, I, I, I like to give people the opportunity to change mm -hmm. because we have been given our opportunity. What? Based on how we grew up, where we come from, what, what we could have been doing mm -hmm. based yes. on rap being yes. a thing that actually been a significant part of mm. growing us to be the men we become, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like to say he would change. That's telling, you know, when you have to have these relationships with people in the music business that you generally can't trust. As part of their legacy, what could artists today learn about the finances of this business from De La Soul? What's sort of their financial and business legacy uh, in the term in the hip hop world? I think that one of the major lessons they could learn is that ownership and controlling your masters is an important piece, but also knowing and being smart with what you do with the with 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 your masters and owning them. Like because again you can just own them and sit on them and it's cool. Or you could like figure out ways to have them 
enter the marketplace and participate in the streaming ecosystem in a way that's that works for everybody. Because again, business is a partnership. Business as a partnership requires a good partner. And that's the other thing about them entering the streaming space that's so important and so vital is that they control their masters now. So they decide who they want to participate in business with as opposed to the business happening and them being outside of it. I think that one of the biggest struggles that they had to endure and that a lot of legacy acts from the 80s and the 90s and even the early aughts had to endure was like, you know, the, the contractually, when you sign a record deal, the language that first pops up in any kind of like entertainment deal is that in perpetuity. And that's one of those, it's, it's, it's language that if you're just like an 18 year old kid with a lawyer that wants to get the deal done and you just want to put your record out, you don't really care about those words. And then you sign, you sign the line and then you, you understand that in perpetuity means forever, like beyond your, beyond your existence on earth. And also like I, I don't know if the language what the language was back then, but you know in the in the early aughts, two thousands, was just like in perpetuity throughout the universe. And again, like when you're signing contracts and you see the word universe, you're like, well, Earth, yeah, sure, you can do it in China or wherever you're going to advertise. But then you see Elon Musk shoot a Tesla into space, and you're like, oh, that meant the actual universe. Like <laughs> we're going to colonize Mars and build Live Nation is going to build a venue and have your hologram performing out there for the, the the blue man group flying around in space. And that's fine because you signed the paperwork for it. So a lot of what Daylight has been doing with this catalog re- renegotiation thing and why it took so long is that just nailing down everything and making sure that every single word, because again, like it's literally a single word could change the, tra- the trajectory of your career contractually. So I'm curious if you're looking at the sort of rap world today, Right. There's always this generic question of, you know, who are the heirs? Who are the people carrying the torch? Again, I think aesthetically, Little Nas X, I think that perhaps musically, I mean, I would say people like Steve Lacey and Steve Lacey isn't even hip hop. Who are acts today that you would say they got a little De La Soul to them, either in style or presentation or even just sort of attitude? You got like Open Mike Eagle. You got like Quelle Chris. You got... Arm and Hammer, these groups, you got even the Alchemist uh, and the stuff he's doing, and Earl Sweatshirt and Odd Future, Isaiah Rashad. I feel like there are a lot of artists that are allowed to be themselves in a weird way. Like even down to naming conventions, there was a period of time where like an artist just kind of going by their government name, like Vince Staples being able to just be Vince Staples as a rapper in my opinion, is one of those things that's a correlation to an artist coming out and be like, hey, no, I'm I'm there's no costume. This is how I dress. And this is just how me and my friends speak. You know, we speak for us and we don't speak for the, we speak kind of like our language is coded so that you come in closer to understand. If you don't want to come in closer to understand, this music isn't for you. I always end the show with like, oh, how can people get involved or participate or something optimistic? But I'm going to go back to the beginning of our conversation where I asked you about like favorite songs. And you're like, well, we'll talk about it later. What if somebody was like, okay. You know, streaming, it's available. De La Soul is available today. What are like the two songs where you're like, if you're going to go into the world of De La, if you're going to step back into the world of De La Soul, what are the two songs that you got to listen to? Or even just the ones that, that are top of mind for you where it's like, when I think of De La, I automatically think of this. Listen, I... I'm I'm gonna run to my favorite album, Balloon Mind State, which I know is not everybody's favorite album, but Balloon Mind State is the one that blew my mind. It's solely responsible for me sitting here talking to you, hands down, like straight up and down. That album is one of the ones for me. But 
Um, the out al- the song from that album that I would point people to is Break of Dawn. You've heard it, you know what I'm saying? Like like you've definitely heard it before because it it, it has the Michael Jackson sample, but it's the one that if you are a casual daylight listener and you don't know where to start, that's a very palatable entry point and it's very soothing. It's it's, it's easy to listen to. I think on Stakes is High, it's so easy. The Dave solo joint is one of my favorite ones. I mean, because I have a fond memory of the video. The video just had a who's who of rap cameos in it. And it was like this <laughs> this kind of sister video to uh, Fuji's Killing Me Softly in a way to like the rap cameo thing. But that's another one that's like has the message. It has the heart of De La Soul there. But, you know, it's it's, it's colorful enough to to not be off-putting. Now, if you want to go deep cut De La, if you want to go abstract De La, I would say... Back again to Balloon Mind State, Patty Duke, uh, running through the trenches, running through the trenches, running through the trenches, it's the Patty Duke, it's the Patty. Like, again, that's one, Guru's on there doing the hook. And then, like, you know, I feel like I Am I Be is another good one, especially if you're, like, into jazz. They talk about who they are and what they've been through. And one more, the, the one more I wanted to mention was off of De La Soul is Dead, Biddy's in the BK Lounge. Because it is the most entertaining song from flow to beat changes to subject matter. It's the song is just about them being spotted in the Burger King lounge at their in their neighborhood. They go get Burger King, and somebody's like, "Isn't that Tracy Chapman?" <laughs> He's like, "No, I'm Dave from Day La Soul." <laughs> like so, like they had this sense of humor and this like they didn't take themselves too seriously, but they also took the art so seriously that you kind of could just not think about the the level of skill and just enjoy the the actual song. Donwell is a rapper, DJ, and producer. He's also the host of the Almanac of Rap podcast. Thank you so much for joining us in front of the mic today on A Word. Thank you for having me, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. A huge fan of the show, obviously, and it was great talking to you. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.